This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Larry Allen. Larry is a president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Is that the correct name, Larry? That is the correct name. Okay, I, I, I got it. That's good. So, Larry, <laughs> um, welcome back to the show. It's been quite a while, um, and, but it's good to have you on, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. You are a, a keen observer of all things government contracts, and I think one of the things I know you've been thinking about a lot these days is um, the future of these big IDIQ contracts and what you see going on in the market. So, and what are you seeing and what are you thinking, Larry? Well, Roger, as you know, I'm a big proponent of indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracting. I've kind of grew up in this industry over the last 30 years, first as a schedules, GSA schedules proponent, advocate, which I still very much am. Uh, and then later, as someone who worked with a number of different indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts for information technology and more recently professional services. And I understand the benefits of these programs. I work not only with industry people on them for a number of years, but with people in government setting these programs up, whether it's GSA, NIH, what have you, to get these contracts in a place where you know they can meet the needs with widespread of government agencies and they're good models however what i see today that's troubling is that it takes an awfully long time to set these contracts up and that that's nothing new roger but the timeline to get these large idiq contracts in place just keeps being pushed out to the right it seems uh, you have problems with as we talk about this with GSA's Alliant to small business problems that we've had for over a year with that contract, it's tied up in litigation. Uh, two higher profile contracts, one is the Defense Information Services Agency DEOS cloud contract that's being held up under a protest. And then the, the big one, uh, which is IDIQ, but not multiple ward, is the DOD JEDI contract. All of these, contracts, Roger, promised opportunity for federal contractors to get cutting-edge services in the case of Alliant to small business from really good qualified small businesses in the case of the latter two, getting cloud-based secure solutions for a variety of uh, DOD needs. And it's not like the government is going without buying the types of services that are covered by these contracts whether it's cloud services or IT, there are alternative acquisition methods that exist. And my concern is that because it takes five or longer years to put one of these base contracts in place before anybody can even buy off of one, Roger, your government needs change. They change more over five months, certainly over five years. 
And it kind of got me to thinking whether or not the era of the large IDIQ might be on the wane. That's too early to say for sure, but when you look at a government that has alternative acquisition methods that can move much faster, albeit for small dollars, and the, the need is uh, substantial, this is something that I think we have to talk about. Yeah, well, Larry, that is interesting. So why do you think we're seeing these delays? I mean, I, I mean, a lot of it boils down to, I think, the litigation, right, did protests, you know, sort of process-driven delays. My thinking is that, you know, some of this is, it's all about market closing or market um, limiting or, and or, you know, opportunities for companies. They see it as, if I don't get on this vehicle, I'm shut out for five years, 10 years, whatever. So the stakes are so high at the entry point that you're having these protests. Does it strike you as, you know, plausible? Roger, I think that's the central factor. Indeed. And of course, the most visible one is the one that you just mentioned. And that is companies believing that if they don't get on a certain vehicle, they're going to be out of luck for a five or 10 year period. Uh, no guarantee that there would be an on-ramp or even if there were an on-ramp that they would be successful uh, in getting on. So there's a lot of uh, concern in industry about bidding on these contracts and that you know, we've got to get on this. This is going to be the key contract. But then your government sees that and they react to it as well. And they react to it, Roger, in, in two different ways. First, the people who put the contracts in place at GSA, at NIH, at, at NASA, they try to make their RFPs protest proof. Now we know that there is no such thing as a protest proof contract, but what we're really talking about here is a successful protest. So when you look at a, a large contract like GSA's Enterprise Information Services contract, the new telecom contract, not so new anymore, newer, uh, that contract took over five years to put in place. And one of the reasons why is because the people at GSA went to great steps to try to make it impervious to a successful protest, knowing correctly that they were gonna get protests from unsuccessful offers. We've seen that scenario play out countless times. We saw it play out in uh, GSA's Olympus contract. We've seen it play out in Alliant in a couple of different iterations. So it's this whole centrality of the protest that drives not just industry action in terms of the actual protest themselves, but they uh, drive now government actions in the acquisition planning phase. And yet, you remember that I said there are two ways that government reacts to this. Ironically, one of the other things I think that's starting to drive this behavior a little bit more, Roger, is the entire vesting class phenomenon being managed by the Office of Management and Budget. On the surface, from a government management standpoint, we can talk about an objective best-in-class standard for what good contracts look like, and OMB wants to drive people to those best-in-class contracts. Okay, well, when you designate uh, contracts with that best-in-class tag, that just further puts the pressure on industry to get on that best-in-class contract 
And if they're left with another contract that doesn't have a, that tag or they don't have other ways to sell to the government except through the open market, the perception, I think correctly, is that's going to make their government business life much more difficult. Yeah, it's kind of like it's doubling down on, you know, on the importance of a particular contract to a company's ability to compete in the federal market. You know, one of the things that GSA moved towards was the sort of self-scoring model. Again, I think that goes to your comment about trying to make things a bit protest-proof. And I think that's that was a successful approach for a while. But, you know, now we're seeing, you know, lawyers are creative and, you know, and also the government has to do its homework as well. We're seeing more protests around those as well. Is that your sense or not? Well, I, it is my sense. I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen with the NIH CIOS P4 contract, Roger. I think a lot of people in the industry are. Uh, and I'm fascinated from the standpoint of what are they going to come up with in terms of a self-grading report card uh, similar to those being used in GSA. We know that NIH is developing that type of report card but what are the evaluation factors that are going to be on it? And does that report card itself then become susceptible to a protest? Hey, you know, you didn't look at this. You should have waited that more. Right. You uh, didn't validate the, the self-scoring. And while the government has wide discretion in how it wants to set up its acquisition uh, premises, Roger, so too do government contract lawyers have broad discretion in protesting over things that they I uh, think the government ought to take a second look at. Right. Hey, Larry, we're up on the break. When we come back, I want to keep focusing a bit on um, the, that, the NIH COSP4 contract a little bit, just get some of your thoughts on that, perhaps. Um, and then maybe we'll start talking about possible the unpriced schedules or unpriced contracts, that authority and where it is. So we'll talk about those things when we come back. And my guest today is Larry Allen. He's the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and we're talking about the current state of IDIQ contracts in federal procurement, um, Larry. And I know you brought up, and it's great you did, because I really did want to you know, dive a little bit more into it and ask you about um, the NIH sales P4 uh, contract vehicle or the upcoming procurement for it um, to establish the next generation of it. And, you know, I guess one of the things that nobody has seen is um, the, <laughs> the scoring methodology, the self-scoring methodology. Um, NIH has indicated it, that it's going to utilize that, but it hasn't yet shared that with the public, basically. Um, from your perspective, does that kind of push the idea or make make it sound business sense to have a, another draft RFP moving forward? Roger, I think it does. I think uh, we're talking about a, a major procurement here. We've been having robust discussions to NIH's credit with industry for a number of months. NIH has promised a self-scoring mechanism for, oh, at least the last 60 to 90 days. We haven't seen it yet, and yet the official acquisition timeline uh, is rapidly catching up with reality. 
I, I think that means that industry should rightfully have some time to be able to assess a self-scoring report card, a self-scoring mechanism along with the narrative that uh, NIH might want them to fill out. These things do take some time, Roger. They take some time to review and uh, NIH has said that while they are certainly aware of GSA's mechanisms that they're going to have their own, which I think is perfectly adequate, but what that means is in terms of time as contractors ought to have enough time to do it. The draft RFP came out several months ago. Uh, since that time, I think uh, NIH has updated a lot of its acquisition approach, not just with the report card, but with the narrative, uh, with some of their ways that they might potentially treat joint ventures. Uh, so all of that argues, I think, for maybe a, another look at a draft. Unfortunately, one of the things they haven't changed is their desire to move forward with one unified contract and not have a breakout for small businesses. And I know that is an issue with small businesses uh, in the arena. Yeah, Larry, it's you know, one of the huge benefits, you know, in my experience, I think you know, you'll validate this, is the draft RFP is in the best interest of the government as well. And that you're going to get feedback and you know, and the insight from industry as to how effective that approach is. Are there any unintended consequences? It's that give and take that makes for a better product in the long run. Um, well, is that your experience? I, I agree. No, I totally agree. Not only does it make for a better product in the long run, Roger, I think that, uh, you know, ironically, we started off uh, the discussion today about how long it takes to put an IDIQ contract in place. And yet, when you come out with parts of your acquisition in a sequential manner, <laughs> you kind of have to expect a longer lead time. You gotta, you gotta strike a balance. And in the case of NIH, I, I think the concern would be if you, they don't go out with the second RFP and there are a lot of unanswered questions, when the final RFP itself does come out, you can have a high likelihood of getting a pre-award protest protesting something in that RFP that could have been resolved if you had done a second draft. Uh, and ironically, the timeline ends up being more or less the same. It's just that there's more litigation involved. Right. I think, yeah. And I, I think actually, yeah, to your point, it will shorten the timeline. If you get the stuff out front before you actually started the formal competition, it gives everybody a chance to provide, you know, good feedback to make sure, you know, what the government's approach, you know, is going to work for the particular requirements and, and evaluation methodology there's using. Uh, that, which goes to another question is, and this one appears to be a combination, so I'm, maybe it's a hybrid, maybe that's the right term, in a couple different ways. You mentioned narrative. This is going to be a combination, I think, self-scoring, but also submission of, you know, certain narrative parts of the response that will be evaluated in a more traditional sense, that hybrid approach. Do you have any thoughts on that? And then we do need to tackle the idea, the hybrid sort of, the idea that they're going to combine it into a single award with, with small and large businesses, a single contract vehicle. Well, I think it's pretty clear that CISP4 as 
as envisioned by NIH is not necessarily an entry-level government contract. You know, first of all, you've got the scoring mechanism, uh, which either you or a member of your team is going to have to have enough points to qualify to submit a bid. So that talks about past experience. Uh, the narrative itself, Roger, also says, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a narrative, you better have something to write about. Um, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you're one of these companies that's coming along and you're thinking that you know, this contract could be a great entry point to my federal IDIQ portfolio, I might rethink that uh, because I don't think that's really where NIH is as an agency. I don't fault them for that, by the way. They are setting up a contract to meet a specific scope of needs. Uh, it's a the predecessor contract has been very popular, uh, particularly with the Department of Defense. Uh, like any good contracting shop, NIH knows what its customers want. Uh, they know that they want to keep being responsive to those customers. So they're setting the bar at a certain place by using these evaluation mechanisms to try to come up with companies that have some good experience that can meet a variety of needs so that uh, business actually drives through this acquisition method. Right. So, Larry, on, uh, turning to the um, the the idea of this is a you know single contract vehicle with both large and small businesses on it. I think there's, I guess, unease, concern with that approach. I mean, both from large businesses and you know, and from small businesses as well. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, I do think it's a concern. You're correct in saying it's a concern for companies of all sizes. If you're a small business, you're concerned that uh, you might not uh, ever get uh, visibility in competing against larger companies. Even though you uh, may be awarded the IDIQ contract, there are two different skill sets in play. One is uh, being able to put together a bid package enough to get on the contract, but then you actually have to go out and compete for task orders. Uh, and when you're competing for task orders, you're going to be competing against everybody. Uh, so that's a definite small business uh, concern. If you're a large business, you're looking at the smaller businesses thinking, you know, if NIH is faced with the prospect of getting 25 bids for every piece of work they put out because a number of small businesses are submitting proposals. Yes, that's great for competition, but the reality is government customers aren't going to want to go through any contract vehicle where they have to wade through a large number of responses at the task order level. And that might devalue or diminish the value of having this contract award. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, NIH is trying to ensure that everybody who's on that contract is going to be competitive, experienced, can meet the need, uh, which is all good from a technical standpoint. But if there's an ease of use question, uh, because there, there's the prospect of getting you know, a large number of bids on task orders, that could be an issue uh, that drives usage. And, and while government buyers will frequently determine the acquisition method that they want to use, well, they always determine it sometimes, you know, they do ask contractors, you know, what do you think is a good way for us to acquire this? And if the idea is that, you know, you can use one that's going to take your customer fewer 
uh, less amount of time to go uh, through the bid process, then you might use that one. Right. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, to your point, I think it's, some of it's just about simplicity of approach and two contract vehicles get you to a point where you're making a decision about if you are the customer who wants to use a, a Lion or a Lion small business or Oasis, Oasis small business, or, you know, in the past, the two NIH separate contracts, I think it's much it's much easier in the planning process to get that decision out of the way and move forward on one or the other vehicles. It's, I think it's just a more streamlined approach in the long run for your acquisition planning um, as well. And, you know, Larry, you know what, we're up on the break and I think we really did dissect that the <laughs> vehicle. So uh, let's turn in the next segment to the unpriced, um, authority that GSA and other civilian has on price get like on price schedules or on price contracts and what does that mean and where is it right now I'm Roger Waldron uh, my guest today is Larry Allen president of Allen Federal Business Partners and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And uh, Larry, um, this segment, um, we're going to talk about um, the unpriced schedule concept, I guess is the best way to characterize it, is you know, just um, about two years ago now, getting close to two years ago, um, civilian agencies, including GSA, were providing authority to establish multiple ward IDIQ contracts for hourly rate services and not have to evaluate price at the contract level and leave the evaluation of price and technical merit at the task order level. The idea is a streamlining uh, capability that increases access to innovation from the commercial market. And in particular, as part of that statutory authority from uh, August of 2018, is GSA has the authority to do unpriced service schedules as well, which is kind of unique in and of itself. So, um, what do you think of that whole idea? You know, and where and where are we? What's going? What, what what are you hearing going on about? Roger, I think it's past time for GSA to initiate an unpriced schedule. We've been talking about this issue for at least 28 years that I can remember. <laughs> yeah, one way or another. <laughs> That's right. And look, at a time when you have existing government acquisition vehicles that do not have contract level prices, you, know, you have basic purchasing agreements uh, in DOD, you have architect and engineering contracts that do not have contract level pricing, uh, you have other mechanisms in government that don't always have a contract level price associated with them. It's not like we're breaking net new ground here, Roger. Right. Um, yep. Government E4E, I believe, Larry, as well. I mean, because DOD has its own right. statutory authority and it's had it for years and it, it, it was able to implement it. <laughs> well, right. And implement it with success and relying on contracting officers to do the acquisition work that's indicated. In this case, that's to determine a fair and reasonable price at the actual time of purchase. That's really where a lot of the competition takes place, Roger. That's really where uh, you get uh, companies who say, oh, this is a real piece of business. I better make sure that I react accordingly, which is a lot more competitive than 
you know, general concept of a fair and reasonable price. Now, fair and reasonable price is what it says it is, and contracting officers at GSA currently uh, ensure that scheduled prices are fair and reasonable. But we also know that there's a lot of scheduled business that's done at discounts other than those uh, at the contract level. There's precedent for this. We've seen it work well, as you point out. DOD has experience with it. Um, when you have a, a program that needs to stay competitive with things like other transaction authority, uh, then uh, it may it's definitely time to, to, to try this out. Right. It seems to me the delta or the relevance between the contract level pricing and the actual pricing for the orders for services under schedule that, you know, that gap is actually increasing. You know, I think we looked at it um, here at the, you know, the coalition looked at it and um, I think close to two thirds or a little bit over two thirds of all the service orders are firm fixed price at this point off the schedule. And that's a good thing, right? And the order right. procedures talk about using firm fixed price to the maximum extent you, you can you know, that seems to me kind of validates the idea like it's really at the order level and pricing based on the unique agency requirement and the technical slash management approach to that problem along with price. Is that sort of what you're seeing? Well, right. I do agree with you, Roger. I think that you have contracting officers at agency levels who are currently using the schedules program. They are able, in fact, they have to, be able to look at task order level pricing for their specific needs. You know, contract level prices on the professional services schedule are nice to have, but really they're the ultimate guide point. Um, nobody looks at a price on a service schedule and says, you know, I'm going to buy 20 hours of a system engineer three, or very few people do that. You know, more frequently, that systems engineer three is combined with you know, seven or eight other labor categories to meet a specific project need. So we're already talking about contracting officers who have to make that price affirmative determination at the task order level. Now the scheduled contract price may or may not even be something that's considered. It's going to end up being blended in with the overall task. Now, I, I think, Roger, you know, we're talking about tactics here. I think if you're going to get something implemented for the, an unpriced schedule, we need to give it a name. So okay. I'm going to propose that we call it the Bruce Linster Act. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, because, you know, uh, We're dating we, ourselves now, Larry. We, we are, but it was 28 years ago that Bruce Linster, late of IBM, uh, talked about having a concept of a schedule that did not have a contract level price, but there would be some sort of an electric uh, ticker tape akin to a stock market price uh, ticker tape that would come across and show what current pricing was. Now, I'm not sure if we're wondering if we need to go there. In fact, in the interceding years, the schedules program has become a net service oriented contract. So, Ticker tape pricing is probably not useful there, but uh, since Bruce was one of the first advocates, why not? You hang a name on it, you can put a campaign around it and get everybody behind the Bruce Linster Act to support an unpriced 
schedule pilot, right? Or you could, you know, Tom Davis. Remember Tom Davis? He, the the uh, proposal that was never implemented was um, by GSA it was the idea of doing exactly what you described in a certain sense, letting IT companies post their pricing without having to negotiate it and post it on GSA Vantage and, um, you know, just go about their business and, you know, do business with the federal customer pursuant to, you know, that electronic catalog. Um, I think there were some thresholds for sales under, through GSA Vantage that had to be met to trigger the ability to use that authority and those were never reached. Um, so, and that was around 2000. So, yeah, we've just been around for a long time. Why do you think, do you have any sense of, again, the delay, I guess? I don't know what the right word, the time is ticking. Um, you know, the authority was given to GSA uh, almost two years ago now, it's to be two years in August. Why hasn't there been any action on it, do you think? Roger, I think for a lot of the same reason that we haven't seen a lot of action overall on the price reductions clause. You know, there are people in GSA, and to be fair, not all of them are in the office of the Inspector General, who are so used to doing scheduled contracts a certain way that they feel that if they're not doing the price negotiation, they're not giving the customer agency a comfort level. Uh, it kind of the question that gets asked is, well, if I'm not negotiating a price, what's the value that GSA is adding? Why buy from the schedule? Well, you know, GSA is still validating the responsiveness and responsibility of contractors. They're still negotiating the base contract terms and conditions. That's a substantial value. Uh, so I, I don't want to worry about that at all. But I think that there are those who are so used to doing the schedule a certain way and they feel that agency contracting officers don't have a comfort level with uh, negotiating task order prices if we don't at least give them some sort of a guideline. Uh, so we're not doing our job and our customers won't be able to figure out how to get a good price if we don't put a price out there. Uh, I understand that to a certain extent, but this is why you have pilots. Uh, I think that... Uh, and GSA uh, is big on pilots, right, Larry? Yeah, I think GSA, ought to, it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the GSA ought to give its uh, customer agency contracting officers credit where they're due. Look, these are certified government contract professionals who are used to making task order level pricing decisions. Empower them to do that without providing a price. And if we've already said... In the services context, that pricing at the contract level can really just be pretty basic guideline pricing to begin with. So um, it probably doesn't really have much of an impact at all on an agency buying decision uh, in that context. So I think GSA ought to give its uh, customers more credit than they are. And they also ought to give themselves more credit for doing the important work of vetting companies, making sure they're financially stable, all of the other things that go into awarding a scheduled contract. But if you eliminate the pricing part, you can lower your overhead, GSA's overhead, because it lessens the impact on advantage. It lessens the workload of the contracting officer. It enables the agency to get contracts in place that can be used on a much shorter timeline. Remember, 
at the top of the hour, we we're talking about shortening the timeline for major IDIQ contracts. Yep. And Larry, you know what? We're up on the break. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of all that's news in, in IDIQ contract world. My guest today is Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And Larry, we're talking last segment a lot <laughs> about the unpriced schedule concept. Um, and you made a really, I thought, great point with regard to, you know, the some of the reluctance may perhaps be the idea that without negotiating price, there's some view that that then what is GSA's role or what's the value add? But it seems to me, I think you're, that sort of thought misses the bigger picture of all that GSA does in the context of the schedules to try to create a market. And this actually would actually make it an even more responsive, um, innovative marketplace for services. Any thoughts on that? Roger, at a time when your major uh, IDIQ vehicle for services uh, is A, dominating your total multiple award schedule portfolio, and B, not growing as fast as your uh, non-schedules-based services contract oasis. I think uh, you have to take a look at what you can do to keep your customers happy, to keep people uh, interested in the schedules program, and to take some bold initiatives to spark growth. I know that the GSA service schedule leaders are very interested in sparking growth. Uh, I think one of the ways to do this is to give a new feature to that part of the schedules program uh, and do something that's not priced. GSA's people, Roger, their management team who oversee the professional service portfolio are very savvy business people. Uh, they work very hard to make sure that they are not just reaching out to industry, but reaching out to government customers as well. And they have a plan. They have a plan for how they want to grow their internal services portfolio, whether it's schedules or OASIS, whatever it is. And we haven't even talked about assisted acquisition services, which is an important part of this. Uh, but part of that plan ought to include uh, doing a non-priced pilot uh, because that's definitely going to be a feature that draws some attention. Look, one of the wraps against the schedules program is that it's always there. And it's not, doesn't have a definitive end date or start date like every other IDIQ has. Uh, so sometimes it's hard for the schedules to stay at the forefront of people's minds and, and get, get some marketing. Hey, doing an on-price pilot guarantees you're going to get attention for this program. And it can be very positive attention. As you mentioned, and I've tried to, to say as well, GSA does have a team. They have a team that looks at both the strategic and tactical. They ought to take some pride in being market makers in this part of the federal arena and uh, take the next step and try out this method. Yeah, it seems logical that with the schedules consolidation, and I know the professional services team at GSA, you know, basically we're the leader on this with regard to, you know, the, the consolidation from 
five schedules to the single professional services schedule. You know, they kind of took the lead on all this and we're, we're sort of the guinea pig for the rest of GSA and GSA is going through schedules consolidation to try to create a more, I guess, comprehensive, holistic, responsive marketplace. This just seems to me to be the next logical step in that, in that direction um, moving forward. So um, with that, let's um, turn to um, some other, you know, sort of IDIQ-ish kind of news. And um, so GSA is working on Astro. What is Astro, Larry? Roger, Astro to me is kind of a very innovative GSA contract method. This is going to be for unmanned aerial vehicles, related types of products, services related to the support of unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, set up intentionally for the Department of Defense, I think really at the request of the Department of Defense. Uh, and what I think uh, makes it interesting, not only is this uh, something that's a little bit of a departure for GSA in terms of a scope. Uh, I can remember sitting around a table years ago joking about the fact that we're going to put drones on schedule. Well, now with Astro, we're not too far away from that. Right. Uh, but it's also being managed by GSA's FedSim organization, which has a unparalleled reputation in terms of managing large dollar complicated assisted acquisition methods, but uh, this would actually be managing the IDIQ contract itself from the beginning and then managing the acquisitions that would take place against the contract that uh, they put in place. So here, FedSim is really offering a soup to nuts type of uh, experience for DOD. Uh, it's something that's getting a lot of attention, not just from traditional defense contractors, but from a number of companies in the IT and services realm to look for ways that they can participate. Uh, it may not be as big as an, an encompassing as something like uh, an Oasis but or, it's alliance, going, yeah. or Alliance, certainly, but it's going to drive, uh, it's driving a lot of attention, Roger, and I think it's going to drive a lot of participation. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that, um, you know, continues to move forward. Um, over the course of the year. Um, and speaking of the year, so we're in June. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're looking at the last quarter and the end of year spend and, and also, you know, with the COVID-19 response as well. What, what are you seeing? What do you, what do you think the last quarter of the years of the government fiscal year is going to shape up like? Well, Roger, the fourth quarter of the fiscal year, you know, is always federal busy season. And this year is not going to be any different. But I think that because of COVID-19, we've seen some delays in government buying. We've seen some delays in government agencies obligating funds. I mean, for one thing, everybody had to get adjusted to telework. And now it looks like people might have to get adjusted to working back in the office part-time. Uh, you had to do a lot of continuity of operations planning. So not a lot of acquisition stuff got done that you would expect to get done in the third quarter. Yet every agency still has their funds to spend, Roger. They have use it or lose it dollars. So one of the things I'm beginning to predict is that come September, we're going to have an awful lot of agencies wake up and go, wow, we still have all this money to obligate. And I think it's going to be spent in a couple of ways. I think the 
predominant way for contractors is that the lot of current programs are going to get extended. So I think we're going to see money put into renewals and extensions of things that are already happening now. Um, not as much going into net new buys for whatever reason. I think some of that's going to be timing. Oh, we don't have enough time to put together an acquisition to do something new at this late date. But by the same token, they want to get that money out the door. So I think we're going to see a lot of obligations of funds. I think we're going to see pressure on assisted acquisition organizations to take money uh, maybe later than they have in the last couple of years because once that money gets obligated, it's considered spent and it doesn't get lost. Uh, hopefully it doesn't slip through the cracks either. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's going to be the ride of the Valkyries, particularly in the last 30 days of the fiscal year, uh, because we've seen COVID-19 and its impact push buying activity out to the right. Right. Um, interesting. Um, just, uh, we got about a minute left, Larry. So I just wanted to get your impression too, you know, with the way the government's sort of transitioned to, you know, uh, working remotely and the investments made there, how, how, how has it played out from your perspective? I mean, you, you engage with the government on a daily basis. Um, what's your experience been? Roger, net-net, I think this has kind of made the government a little bit more responsive. Anecdotally, from my experience, uh, people working from home, uh, they have their Zoom meetings, they have their other online discussions, but they also don't have their commutes. And uh, for whatever reason, I think the, the flexibility of working at home has made them uh, a little bit more willing to talk with people. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, Maybe they have more time. I think we're going to have a very difficult time getting federal agencies, uh, people back in their federal agencies, which uh, I think is indicative of lots of things, not just COVID-19, but people apparently don't want to spend hours on the American Legion Bridge. <laughs> uh, who knew? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think this could really disrupt how government business gets done over the long term. That's something we're going to have to monitor. Right. All right, Larry, thank you so much. Um, we're going to close it up for this week. Uh, my guest today has been Larry Allen. He's the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. 
Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.